Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello? Hello? <clears throat> Podcast Network Asia. Welcome to She Talks Peace a podcast that highlights the role of women peacebuilders around the world in bringing lasting peace and security to their communities. Eavesdrop into their conversations and get to know their stories. From the Philippines to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Palestine, from Myanmar to the United States, their dreams and their hopes for a world without violence and a world where every woman and girl can be whoever she wants to be. Hosted by Amina Rasul Bernardo, President of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy, and Dina Zaman, a Malaysian journalist and co-founder of Iman Research. This is She Talks Peace. Welcome to She Talks Peace. This is Amina Rasul of the Philippine Center for Islam and Democracy from Manila. And my co-host... Hello, Amina. Hello, everyone. Salam from Kuala Lumpur. I'm Dina Zaman from Iman Research, Malaysia. Hi, Dina. How have you been? Well, we have a new prime minister now. Right. It's still early days, so things have been a bit quiet. I think right now, well, things have eased up for those who've been, you know, vaccinated twice and have, you know, finished that quarantine period. They're able to dine in, though the Delta variant is carrying everyone. So, Really, there's really not much to say. It's the same old, same old in Kuala Lumpur. But what about you? How is Manila? Well, Dina, I am pleased to report that I have not killed the plants in my garden. I have a little garden. Uh And when we went into lockdown, March of 2020, I decided to do some gardening instead. Nothing better to do, right? And originally, I thought of vegetables and herbs because we were so worried that the situation might get really bad and food would be a problem. So we should grow our own. Well, I I killed many of the vegetables. They they don't do well with me. But as you most likely have experienced as well, The pandemic has pushed restaurants and entrepreneurs to sell online. So my family has been remarkably well fed without me having to do much cooking. So I'm happy to report that these plants are doing very well. I have spearmint, basil, tarragon. I even have orchids, bromeliads. I planted a... Yeah, you should see it. It's It's a tiny garden, really tiny, but... It's doing well. I planted a honeysuckle, I don't know, four months ago. And Uh it's growing so fast, Dina. I have a jasmine plant. And when it blooms, Uh the smell is so lovely. So now butterflies and birds visit my tiny garden. So I take coffee in the morning. I sit there and watch the birds. I didn't do any of this before the pandemic. 
Now my kids see that I'm so obsessed with the birds that they even gifted me with, with binoculars. So <laughs> there I am, sipping coffee in my little garden All and right. thinking how grateful I am to be alive and safe with my family. And at the end of the day, we as mothers pray that our children, our families, you know, are well and secure. You know, Amina, you have to WhatsApp me or email me a photo of your garden. <laughs> but I agree with you. I've not been very fortunate to have children because I had endometriosis many years ago. But yes, I am very grateful that, you know, despite whatever we all of us are going through, we're able to enjoy certain luxuries in life. You know, yes. um, I managed to meet my parents over the weekend. So that was good. But, you know, in other countries like Afghanistan, no. They mm. were, mm-hmm. you, a lot of people don't have this kind of privileges that we are experiencing. Yeah. And speaking of security, if I'm not mistaken, isn't the Philippines commemorating the 50th anniversary or the declaration of the martial law? Oh, that's right, Dina. Almost 50 years of wow. um, since martial law was declared. And I remember uh-huh. exactly where I was when martial law was declared by then president, the late president Ferdinand Marcos. I was studying at the University of the Philippines, which was uh-huh. branded by the military under Marcos as a hotbed of uh-huh. communists and leftists. And I was living in a dormitory on campus. So we didn't know exactly what was going on. We were just Uh so afraid. So many of us went to school to find out what was going on. And at that time, my parents were living in Sulu and they were frantic with worry about our security. You see, Uh Dina, martial law was declared by Marcos using two excuses or justifications, as they said at the time. One was the threat of the communists, and the other was the threat of violent violence and secession by right. so-called Muslim insurgents. There was a group called the Muslim Independence Movement at the time, but you know, they were really more noise and on paper. I mean, they were not an armed group. So, you know, actually the threat of secession by Muslims was not based on on reality. But Mm -hmm. since I was a Muslim, my parents actually pulled me out of school. I lost a semester and they brought me home. You see, I was an activist. I used to go to demonstrations and... And all of that. So they were afraid I would get picked up and locked up, Dina. You know, we need one podcast with you to tell, you know, to tell all of us what you went through, what you learned. But because it really does sound like a story, you know, and it's all true. And I bet you, right, just like you, our guest today, Professor Aurora Javate de Dios. I hope I'm pronouncing it properly. Javate. Javate. Okay. Ha. Havate. All right. I apologize. So she too, you know, she was incarcerated. I mean, I, I've never met her, of course, you know, and you do you have. I'm just wondering if her martial law experiences shaped her to become the lifelong feminist leader that she is today, who combines academic excellence and advocacy for women's human rights and gender equality. From the little I know, she was appointed as a chairperson of the board of the commissioners of the National Commission 
on the role of Filipino women by President Gloria Macabacal Arroyo. During a stint then, she lobbied for the passage of the Anti-Trafficking in Persons Act and the Violence Against Women and the Children Act. And in the same period, she was also elected as one of the experts in the UN Committee on the Elimination on All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, where she became the repertoire. The late former President Benigno Simeon Aquino appointed her as the Philippines' representative for women's rights to the ASEAN Commission on the Promotion and Protection of the Rights of Women and Children in 2010 and 2015. Wow, this is a really, you know, this is a very awesome, impressive, you know, resume. You uh, bet. Yeah, as she wrote about martial law, didn't she? Yeah. Oye, that's that's how she is known by her friends and her adoring followers and, and students. <laughs> Oye did produce, wrote, co-wrote that book called Dictatorship and Revolution, The ah. Roots of People's Power. And she published this in 1988. I think this was one of the first analysis of martial law and what happened during the People's Power Revolution. And we can ask her later... If she worries that the authoritarianism that rose then is rising again in the Philippines, Dina. Oh, yes. We must have her. So, Professor Oi Habate de Dios, we would like to welcome you. There's so much we would like to learn from you today. So, over to you. Yes. Uh, good afternoon, Dina. Thank you for that well, kind introduction. Amina here is a lifelong friend, confidant and our mentor on all issues that involve the Muslim people. So I'm glad to be here in this podcast. And as I said a while ago, I was waiting for participants to come in, <laughs> only to realize that this is a podcast. <laughs> uh, because the mode of conversation and connection and networking, this, this is Zoom. So everybody is, you know, connecting via Zoom. But this is something really nice because you can, you know, you can air it anytime and it can be used for many other purposes. So it will have a life of its own. <laughs> yeah. So thank you for this invitation. I'm always glad to, you know, to connect with my friend Amina here. And it has been, you know, like a year or so. And uh, yes. we're all like in-house arrest because yes. we cannot, <laughs> cannot go out. Luckily, we've been, I've been vaccinated, but that does not assure you that you can be safe you know, from, from uh, the COVID virus. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. That's true. And speaking of 
house arrest, Oyi. Yeah. Let me start by by asking you, where were you? And what was your reaction when martial law was declared? Okay. Martial law was declared, I think, September 21, no? But yeah. The announcement was September, something like September 23. Mm-hmm. So previous to that, maybe a couple of years before, I've been quite active on campus dealing with issues on the Vietnam War. Remember that this is the era of the Vietnam War. And part of uh, the student activism at that time had to do with our opposition to the involvement of the Philippines, Mm -hmm. the Vietnam War, because we had the U.S. bases in our midst, no? Right. Uh, In Clark and in Olongapo. So that made the Philippines a staging ground for attacks against uh, the Vietnam people. And then, of course, the issues then also, I remember, was a lot of corruption in government. And then, you know, the intrusion of President Marcos in the Constitutional Convention, in his ambition to prolong his presidency for many, many more years. So this all really disturbed Uh, A lot of students, including myself. So I was involved in UP, in our college, Arts and Sciences, and then on to my membership in KM at the time, Kabataang Makabayan, and also later on as a spokesperson of the Movement for a Democratic Philippines. So I wasn't... uh, you know, at the time, we didn't have any experience of dictatorship whatsoever in yeah. uh, from the independence of the Philippines up to that time. So people were, you know, making use of the democratic space. People were on the streets opposing them. Uh, we had the freest press in Asia. Mm-hmm. And then all the institutions were working, no? But then Father, I remember this Jesuit priest was telling, he wrote something. I think it's part of his prayer for Congress. I'm not so sure now. But he described the situation in the Philippines as a social volcano. So that meant that it's, you know, this social volcano consisting of economic, political problems in the Philippines is about to erupt because of the descent of the people. Mm-hmm. So I was part of that. And, and, and of course, we already foresaw, because we were very young at that time, my goodness, I was just like 18 or 19. So we had no inkling about, you know, the coming repression. Yeah. But we had an idea that the government might employ more forceful methods to stop all these rallies and, and you know, those opposing the government. So I remember also joining Senator Jokno, who was one of the most revered senators at the time. The students, I was part of those assigned to work with what we call the other, the other forces who were not exactly the same as our, our goals, but who were against the possible dictatorship. So mm-hmm. the editor of Manila Times, Chino Roses, some nationalist business people, we we gathered together and we said that we cannot allow this possible martial law to occur. There was already an inkling and a very big possibility that it was going to. But still, you know, if it, once it was declared and once the machinery of, of the military began operating, you know, it was the scariest experience of my life. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Scariest. And, and of course, we were warned that do not stay in your houses anymore. This group of uh, network of student activists telling us that 
do not stay in your house anymore because your houses might be raided by the military. And sure enough, three days before that, I had to stay in another friend's house with some of my other friends. And my house was raided. And mm -hmm. when, when I asked my, my sister, of course, I, it, it was a surprise for me. But what surprised me even more is how many how many were they look, these people, these soldiers looking for me? There was a truckload of soldiers looking wow. for you. Wow. And I said, I'm not a big, uh, a, a big fish here. I you're just, a very dangerous person. <laughs> very dangerous person. So, wow. yeah, I can tell you that if I've just heard about the, you know, the Gestapo during the Nazi period. Mm -hmm. And it's something like that. And I said, I imagine that this must be how it felt during yeah. the yeah. Nazi period. Yeah. You could hear houses being raided by the military in the dead of the night, people screaming, mm -hmm. and people being arrested. In the first six months of martial law, they did not have enough garrisons to put all the, you know, student activists, peasant leaders, factory, you know, union leaders, journalists. They didn't have enough space, so they used basketball courts. Mm -hmm. They use open spaces to just dump all the people who were against Marcelo. And it must be something like uh, 60,000 uh, mm -hmm. of people mm -hmm. were arrested all throughout yeah. the country. Yeah. And to me, it was the scariest. My goodness, I said, this is the end of my life. I'm just 19 years old. Yeah. Yeah. And the good thing about it, and I can remember the horror. I can remember the terror because I was told that many people were arrested and even in those early days, there were a lot of reports of torture. Mm -hmm. But the other thing that I remember most also is the generosity of people. Once people realized that it was martial law, people who didn't know us, people who just opened their doors, their houses to provide sanctuary, to provide mm -hmm. sanctuary mm -hmm. for people like me. And so my friends, friends of my friends and people I really don't know just offer their houses so that we can stay for a few days and a few nights. But then this generosity, this openness, and that they did not fear for their lives, you know, began to fade after three or four months. No, as right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But takot na yung mga tao. Fear yeah, yeah. overcame the people. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember those days, Dina. I escaped the brunt oh. of it. Because my parents just took me out of school and and brought me home so that I could they could they could keep an eye an eye on uh -huh. me. Wow, Dina! I mean, if if you had ever experienced a situation like that, it is just it it shapes you, it marks you for life, oh. and I can just imagine that how this is something that the Afghans are also experiencing yeah. times two times three. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. You know, I mean, I'm listening to the both of you, right? 
talking about your past experiences. And on this side, behind a computer screen, I am just, you know, gobsmacked because this is something which I think for a lot of men and women my age, we cannot imagine. But I do remember my dad. My dad was a civil servant and he was always flying to Manila and he did a lot of work for ASEAN. And mm-hmm. I was very young, but he talked about, you know, things were not good there. And you know, I suppose when you're young, you don't, you know, what you know of the Philippines and Manila was, of course, <laughs> your previous president's wife's lavish, you know, yeah. taste. Yeah. So, you know, for us, it was always that like what you read in the newspapers and you read about the day thing. You know, this is not Malaysia. We sympathize with you, but we cannot empathize. But to hear two women, like I know you, Amina, and today I meet you, you know, Professor, it's how did both of you, what went on in your heads to make you survive? What did you do, Amina, when you left and you were stuck at home? And Professor, what did you do to, to think that, okay, we're in big trouble here, but we have to go ahead with this work that we've done? Yeah, that, that's a very good question. You know, looking back, yeah. you know, I, I, I cannot imagine also how I survived. I cannot imagine how I survived in those days. Well, as I told you, you have your first line of defense force. That is your family trying to protect you and your friends and your close relatives. So we resorted to that when we realized that this was going to be very hard to to be exposed in your in your house and you realize that oh my goodness is going to be uh, really an abnormal period and that we have to do our best to survive and so my my friends and my, my friends from the organizations that I belong to and my personal friends I had contacted them beforehand and I said look here if anything happens and martial law is declared I'm going to have to to go to your houses anytime. Yeah. 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 So we warned them that I can, you know, perhaps be there midnight or whatever time it is. And so my friends were very, you know, open to it. And they said, oh, please come, please come anytime. But there was only one very close friend of mine whose father was a general. <laughs> she was very apologetic. <laughs> and she, she said, I'm so sorry, I cannot give you sanctuary because my father will bring you straight to the prison. <laughs> and so I said, Oh my god, no, no, no. I will not, I will not insist. I will not insist on going. <laughs> so so then that's the first. Then my relatives, of course, my friends, but that lasted for like six months, going from house to house. Friends of friends, I do not know, but were so generous and, you know, taking a risk in taking uh, taking me in. And by the way, that time we were planning to get married, my husband and I. But we had oh, to yeah. Tell us, about, tell us about what happened to your wedding. <laughs> oh, my goodness. This is uh, one for the books. And this is also one of those periods when you see the law does not protect you from, you know, the things personal can also be very complicated. In, in my case, that became a problem even after martial law. So have postponed it a couple of times already. And, and we said, well, you know, this thing might last for some years. And so we might as well get married. But how to get married when you cannot even go to churches, you cannot go to public places for fear of being arrested. So our parents arranged for a private ceremony with a close friend who's a priest. 
And we got married in a private house. And of course, uh, all my friends were also hiding. And so it, we were under very strict security, just very close friends. And my, our parents were crying and crying. And they said, why can't you get married in the open, etc." So that was quite uh, very emotional for our parents. After that, and uh, we presumed that our legal papers would be filed by friends. <laughs> And this is the funniest <laughs> part of our... <laughs> then, but of course, the priest is also hiding because he is also a leader right. among the Christian groups. So what happened was he was arrested and detained for three years. After that, he went on exile in Europe for many, many years. And because of the very chaotic situation, I'm afraid he was not able <laughs> to file our... Marriage registration. Okay. Uh, yes. And when did you find out, Oyi? Exactly when did you find out? This was just... Anyway, what I had was a Xerox copy of our, of our registration with our... But until it is filed in, ano, in your municipality or your city, it is not legal. So then I used that to apply for passports, and it worked for many years. But last 2018, <laughs> I kind of lost my passport and was about to go to, was it Korea? I had a trip going to Korea or Japan. And then I there were revised rules about passport application, and they required a, a legal and, you know, a really all the certificates of birth, weddings, whatever, has to come from the Philippine Statistics Office. So that meant that you have to have a certified and legal document so that they can then certify it as legal. And then I submitted the Xerox copy and they said, no, no, this cannot be. So then I said, but I've used this for, no, there are new rules now and you have to find where that legal document, that certified legal document is. So I went to the town where it was supposed to be registered, only to find out there was none. And, <laughs> okay. Search and search and search. All and right. So there was uh, only to realize that, oh my God, he did not file it because he was also being, he was detained, he was in exile. Right. And when we asked him, did you file? And he said, no, I was not able to. <laughs> So we realized that we were living in sin for 14 years. <laughs> <laughs> I did not plan okay. it. <laughs> and to, to the horror of my children, no? and I asked the legal opinion of no less than the Supreme Court Justice uh, Marvick Leonen, and they analyzed my case, and I said, and I, I, I argued that, you know, those were abnormal times, and Courts were not functioning very well. And right. there, should be, there should be, you know, a proviso that during abnormal times when things like that happen, that there should be an allowance for situations like my situation. I'm sure there are a lot of other people who also were in the same boat, but they said, no, no, no such thing, you know, <laughs> exists in our law. So then several lawyers advised and said, there is no other solution. You have got to marry again. <laughs> and so that wasn't happening. I was married for the first time legally. <laughs> Not after 45 years of marriage. Can you beat that? And, and she and Oyi 
you were teaching in Miriam University. <laughs> yes, uh, Miriam, which is a very conservative. Conservative, <laughs> but it comes to these things. You cannot right. speak out when you're married, when you are not married. And yeah, you had children out of wedlock, Oye. Uh, yeah, I, that's why I mean. <laughs> My children were horrified. <laughs> you know, but these are wonderful stories. You yeah, know. can you imagine? Oh, yeah. Well, nothing, nothing like that happened happened to me. But when uh, I was under house arrest by my parents in Sulu, this is this is the the interesting thing. Martial law is largely responsible for the creation of the Moro National Liberation yes, Front. Yes, I remember that. Yeah, before uh, before martial law, there was really no MNLF. Miswari was a professor, was a teacher at the University of the Philippines. He was, you know, a very quiet and intellectual. But after martial law, he started putting that together. And you know who were the original people who were part of the leadership of the MNLF? These were the sons and daughters of very important Muslim families. For instance, one of my cousins, Desdemona Tan, was a very strong supporter of Miswari. She later married him when they were in exile. And she was, I guess, the, the love of his life. And you had children of warlords who were actual allies of Marcos joining Miswari. So uh, martial law really created the MNLF. So yeah. we in Holo, you know, we uh-huh. were supportive of the rising of this young right. moral leader. So we were providing moral support and then talking very quietly about genocide. So those, you know, that's, that's what was uh, happening to us in Sulu. But it really, in a way, makes me wonder what's happening in, in in Afghanistan. Seems to be a similar situation too, don't you think? Yeah, it's really, you know, one of the things that really stands out is the way 